Greetings, everybody, and welcome to This Is Revolution. My name is Jean Bajalan, in for Jason Miles today. Why is Jason Miles not here today? Well, if you are not aware, Jason is preparing for the TIR, Left Reckoning, Ben Burgess, Young Turks crossover live show taking place in LA at the Terragram Ballroom. Uh, I want to say it's six o'clock, but you know, I've totally forgotten. But Sunday, 23rd of October, should be a fun night. If you guys are in the LA area, do consider going over and seeing Jason. You know, he's very excited for this thing. Um, Pascal and I, though, as responsible citizens of TIR, will be staying at home, looking after our families, and, uh, you know, running TIR while everybody else is having a good time, having a decadent life of being a uh, podcaster superstar. Um, we'll be, you know, keeping it real here. So, you know, before we begin, uh, I would like to remind you all to like and subscribe to the channel. And if you have the means and the inclination, do consider becoming a Patreon uh, supporter. But beyond that, Let's get to the subject of the day, which is the crisis in Britain. And of course, co-hosting with me is the deputy king of um, This Is Revolution, uh, Pascal Robert. How are you doing, Pascal? Peace and greetings to the chat, the audience, and to my good friend, Gene Bartlon. It's, it's going to be an interesting topic today because... Things seem to be going kind of crazy in the UK. So what's uh, what's up with that? I mean, what are our thoughts on this? How do we feel about it? It's you know, it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating to me that we've had several shows where we talk about the crisis of legitimacy in this kind of post-COVID reality that's transpired, and in the height of that, the country that represented the the penultimate of empire instability, which was Great Britain, is suffering from this crisis of legitimacy more than anyone else at this particular moment, going from Brexit to, you know, several, you know, prime ministers resigning in expeditious fashions, the death of the queen and more resignations, and the fall of Jeremy Corbyn, all of these things transpired at this rapid, rapid, rapid uh, period of time. And it makes you wonder whether or not the whole are, you know, is everything up for grabs in terms of the way the global power elite structured right now? And that's really kind of where I want to go with, with the show is asking is like, is everything up for grabs? I mean, is Britain, is Britain the uh, canary in the coal mine? Are we going to see? Go. Are we going to see, you know, everywhere else becoming Britainized, which will be synonymous with totally dysfunctional government, absolutely perverse corruption and all this kind of things? I mean, I mean, everybody's even making a joke. I have this little picture here. They uh, they put Liz Truss, the former prime minister, up against a lettuce who would win. It turned out the lettuce won. And, uh, you know, British politics is kind of a joke. But we are fortunate today to have a power panel to help us discuss this issue. We have, of course, Ralph Leonard coming all the way from London. 
and discourse miniatures coming all the way from the ancient kingdom of Ulster. So uh, welcome, Ralph. Welcome, Discourse. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. So yeah, let's let's um, thanks everybody. Let's get let's get right to right to the core of the issue. What's going on in Britain? So Discourse, can you kind of just give us a rundown of what what the heck has gone on? Because everything has been so fast. I will give you an example. I was at the petrol station in the middle of Springfield, Missouri, and I was talking to my friend at the petrol station, Juniper, and Juniper is talking to me going like, I hear that a lettuce defeated your prime minister in Britain. And I was like, well, I wouldn't say the lettuce defeated the prime minister exactly. We're not actually being governed by a lettuce anymore. But, you know, story of the collapse of the British government is seems to be seems to be the order of the day. So. Can you give us a little rundown of what happened? Uh, I mean, it's tough because where do you, where do you even begin, right? Like, where, where do we go back to 2016? But just recently with Liz Truss, Liz Truss had fought uh, a sort of a leadership election whenever Boris Johnson had forced to resign because of num a number of scandals during his premiership over COVID. So he was forced to resign, which meant then there was a leadership election in the Tory party, the Conservative party. Uh, and there had been, a, the fight had been between two real main contenders, which was Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. With Liz, Liz Truss representing, I suppose, the wing of the Conservative party, the supply side economics and the, the old school, you know, basically Billy Meal, writer the right style of Conservative governance the, the the type of stuff like we hadn't really seen take hold of outside of what was the brexit vote against a late against that was rishi sunak who i, th I think represents more a moderate realm of the conservative party but even in his, his own respects would be seen as right wing i think compared to someone like david cameron from 10 years ago so it was those two people against each other and liz trust won it uh liz trust won it the uh the supply side economics uh, section of the Conservative Party won, and they implemented their manifesto. They implemented what they had promised, which uh, conservative uh, Margaret Thatcher style. Well, they did it. Mask on the markets absolutely buckled. They lost their mind about it because ultimately, what it represented was was borrowing lots of money with no pay it back because they need to do tons and tons of tax cuts at the very, very top. And this fundamentally, I think, destroyed uh, Liz Truss's mandate completely because nobody wanted this. This wasn't what the Tories had been elected on like four years ago, like 2019. This wasn't what they had been elected for. So this was this was the will of the Conservative Party, but not necessarily the will of the people. And it was seen as that. Uh, so that that occurred. And then, that, but that was fine. Uh, Quasi Quatrang, the... The chancellor, uh, his mini budget had spooked the markets, but he was replaced. So if Liz Truss had been fundamental, like had been fatally uh, hit by this, there was still some coming back. Then her home secretary was forced to resign as well because of a sort of breach of etiquette. Although I think that there was some, I think there was some background stuff going there, some backrooms conversations that have been occurring previously before. Uh, but what really, what Liz Truss lost to was that they bungled a very routine vote. The Labour Party had basically put to the House 
the, the House of Commons, that the issue of fracking has been basically one that's been an issue in British politics for a while now. But the Labour Party put a motion forward saying that it would be banned, that it, that the Tories wouldn't, wouldn't implement. And the government basically informed all their MPs that this was a confidence issue, i.e. you're going to vote in line with the government, you're going to vote to not ban fracking because they want to do it because it actually i don't even know why they want to do fracking i think it placates their their core base ralph what's your take and on then, the this this became a big deal oh you're breaking up discourse again oh can you hear me ralph oh sorry what's yep. what's your take what's your take on the current crisis uh in the british government um well it, it it shows that how the British political class are have been ha, are incapable of governing this country and actually implementing any sort of political program. Uh, and this has been the roots of it are with the Brexit vote and the tremors that that has caused with this political class which ha has never known how to really deal with it or how to steer the country in a sort of coherent direction and with um I, and with this trust like it, it, it it's she personifies like just how incompetent like the the Tory especially the Tories are at the moment because she like she herself as a character is quite like um, abnormally unintelligent and quite illiterate. Like she could barely string a sentence together, um, and and for the Tories themselves, because she was picked by the party to lead the party, to lead the government. Sorry, like she was like the risky choice, the sort of more ideological choice and they've sort of bungled it because you know their program was what every sort of uh free market libertarian think tank has ever always wanted you know the IEAEA or whatever they're called or the adam smith institute such as like you know cutting taxes in order to somehow boost growth you know, it's in effect what they tried to do was replicate what Ronald Reagan tried to do in America. Except, economics. Yeah, except the difference is that Britain doesn't have the reserve currency of the world, and you know other countries just can't take up its sovereign debt, and that's the big difference. And that's why it was so silly that this so-called growth plan, as they called it, was even you know contemplated. Yeah. So, so the question I have is that how is it possible that the Tories under Liz Truss thought it was even fathomable to implement such a right-wing economic policy agenda in a wake of COVID just happening within the last year? How did they go from literally having to provide, you know, all of this other supplementary care under COVID to believing that after Boris Johnson is forced to leave office, they can implement 
a worse than Thatcherite economic agenda? Do they just have that much hubris? Um, it's it's hubris. I, I think that they're sincere in their beliefs. Yeah. yeah. So they're deluded by ideology, basically. Their ideology blinds them. I mean, I think this is actually yeah, a really I think this is a really important point because often people are like, oh, this is all just cynical. They don't really believe it. But I think, you know, at times, one of the reasons that you end up with such a disaster in these policy areas is because these people really do buy into that ideology and will take it to an extent, even when reality starts like bashing them in the head. And to a certain extent, um, uh, to a certain extent, that is uh, what happened to Liz Trust, I think. I think, you know, they had this uh, ideology. They had this fantasy, like you said, Ralph, uh, and, and discourse, you know, the supply side economics part uh, of the conservative party becomes central. Uh, they implement it. And there may be people who are cynical about this and see this as like a, an opportunity for personal enrichment. But I think there are a significant number of people who actually think this is a functionally a functioning way to get the British economy going and it just wasn't and even and I think this is an important point even the financial elites in Britain revolted against this I mean Liz Trust wasn't brought down by a mass popular mobilization she was brought down by a revolt from the city of London I mean would you say that's fair would you say uh, yeah would you... absolutely and uh, and the Bank of England as well the because they didn't like it as well. And, um, what you have to understand is like the uh, the part of the Tory party she represents see Brexit as an opportunity to sort of implant more neoliberal free market style economics on Britain because they saw the European Union as a fetter on this sort of thing. And they believe that they're taking up the Brexit um, vote, and they're sort of carrying on the you know the the honor of Brexit by doing all of this. And obviously, there's another wing of the, if you will, Brexit phenomenon that's more sovereigntist, that is more about our national sovereignty and um, sort of like having a kind of conservative social welfareism of a sort and that was part of the vote for Johnson in the first place that kind of that's why you know the conservatives took parts of England that had been labor since the 1920s I think that's uh, I think that's also an, another really important uh, aspect of it you know when brexit happened uh, there was a kind of there was a kind of like um, fantasy about how this would play out. And, you know, there was a left-wing argument for Brexit, but the left-wing political forces really never really had a chance of implementing what they would call a laxit. They, you know, they were totally marginalized or at best they were co-opted by the right wing. And we ended up with a kind of right-wing Brexit, which was, we need to get rid of the European Union because it has things like the social chapter, it has regulations, and we want to deregulate. Whereas the left-wing argument was like, no, we need to get rid of out of the European Union because the European Union 
limits nationalization and public spending and things like that. So, uh, but, you know, what won out in this conflict was this right-wing version. And I think, I really think connecting this kind of, let's say, neo-Thatcherism that came with the list trust government uh, to Brexit is an important thing because it kind of sought to, it was like, I guess it was mo uh, predicated on a kind of fantasy about Britain as a great trading nation. And that Britain was going to be this great, you know, trading hub of the world and what it kind of turned out to be was uh yeah britain like reality is going to smash britain in the ha uh, in the face because it's not 1902 anymore britain doesn't rule the waves britain is a wealthy country but on the outskirts of europe and its position in the european union gave it certain economic advantages which outside the Uni european union it doesn't necessarily have Thoughts? Do how much is there a possibility that the labor faction can take the all of these fractures that are being caused by the machinations of the Tories and make a play for power? Is that completely un impossible based on the parliamentary and statutory makeup of how British politics work? Would that require a whole new parliamentary election? Yeah, yeah, require a new general election, which uh, the power to call that in hands of the executive. So it would be up to the conservatives as to whether or not they want to have a, a, a general election, which they I don't think they will want to do. Yeah, poor poor conservatives don't want. What do you think, Ralph? Any chance of an election, or is it just gonna? Are we gonna just limp along with a new conservative leader? Is Boris gonna come back? <laughs> um, I think inevitably there will be because. The argument for it is just so irrefutable, but they're not going to call it anytime soon because, unless the Tories have a suicide wish, like they are going to get wiped out. And I, I, it, it if they had one today, Keir Starmer would be the next PM. Really? I, I, yeah, he is. He will win it by default because he's just not the Tories. So basically, sure. so basically, we're in a kind of uh, we're in a kind of limbo because even if the conservatives, even if there are some conservatives who might be inclined towards having an election and thinking it's useful, their own sense of self-preservation is that if we have an election now, we'll just lose our jobs and lose our seats. Yeah, uh, and so, uh, and um, what's it? Uh, the best they can hope for, if you if you were in the Tory party machine, the best they can hope for is to get someone like Rishi Sunak in, someone who's tried and tested, the former chancellor, who's regarded as a safe pair of hands, not not someone like Penny Mordaunt or Ben Wallace, who is like who are like unhinged culture warriors, but but someone like Rishi Sunak, who and then just hope that you can get some consolation and not be completely wiped out in the next election so that you so yeah. that you can have a fighting chance to do something like that's the, the, the best next, they can hope for now 
I, I totally agreed. Like the next the next election for them is in like two years, I think, is the maximum time they can kind of play the clock out. And I think they will try to play it out. And a lot can happen in two years. A lot can happen. So I, I think that that is their smartest play is to just get someone very, uh, very uncontentious and, and hopefully try to steady the ship. Are the British really ready to have an Indo, um, Indo-Pakistani as the prime minister? Do you think there's any politics that would make? Because I'm looking at Richie Shunak. Are they going to go with go with him? Do you see that as a possibility? I don't know. I don't know personally. Yeah, what do you think about the uh, identity politics of that in terms of? Uh, well, well, what's his name? I have to say, like, you got to give it to the Tories. They've like done the whole like woke politics really well because they have like a really diverse leadership uh, group. They have like they have my Kurdish soul brother uh, uh, in there, uh, Nadim Zahawi. Uh, they have um, they have all kinds of um, South Asians. They have African people. You know, they played the game very well, right? And you know, I, I like I do. You know, there was a little bit of a scandal where a Labour MP said that uh, that the Chancellor was not really black. And, you know, I find this, like, discourse very stupid. It's like, well, you know, just because you're black, it doesn't mean you necessarily have, like, good politics. Being black doesn't exactly. make... And at the end of the day, this the, the Chancellor was a wealthy financier. Of course he's going to be a conservative. He's got, That's, like, his class interest. Like, it would be weird... If he was like a radical leftist, I, so you know the 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 identity the conservatives have a diverse field at the top. The issue is I don't think the issue is the British public. I think the British public would vote for a uh, vote for a, a a brown or a black or a or or a beige prime minister. I don't think there's a particular issue in Britain with that. I think the question is really the conservative base, and the conservative base is like relatively small i don't know what the numbers are of people exactly in the conservative party but it's like less than i mean it's less than i think it's less than quarter of a million it's maybe like two hundred thousand, maybe even less than that those people you know i think one of the reasons sunak didn't win was because the conservative base was a little bit larry of having having a uh, having a having one of these wily oriental gentlemen uh you know governing the countries like he may be a good he may be a good bean counter but i don't think he can run the show it's like that it's not, no, that's not how things are done in the conservative party i mean i'd rather have a white woman than you know that, this this is the thing if it was up to if it was up to conservative mps they would pick sooner right but but if it was up to the base they would pick someone like penny Morden, who as i said before is a culture warrior that's the basis of her politics. It's just culture wars nonstop. So that's the divide. And that's where it would be interesting to see how this conservative leadership is done. Will they leave it to the MPs or will they go back to the base as uh, was done before? Uh, I, I think the, the process by which they're deciding is that uh, essentially it won't go back to the base. It will be surely decided by MPs in a, in a number of circumstances. One of them is if only a single person receives 100 uh, recommendations from uh, from different MPs, basically. So uh, if, if only one person gets 100 MPs to back them, then that person will automatically become the leader of the Tory party. Uh, but if two or more, then at that stage, it will go to votes of the MPs. And then I think it goes to the base afterwards if it's still unclear. 
So there's going to be a protracted. I think they're trying to keep the BS out of it. To be to be perfectly frank, like I think the the, the executive committee of the Tory party are trying to keep the BS out. Yeah, because the last yeah. time they did it, they picked Liz yeah. Truss, who was yeah. meant to be the wild card, and they said mm-hmm. we're not going to do it again. <laughs> I mean, this is actually one of the really interesting transformations in British politics over the last 40 years. I mean, previously in British politics, the way uh, party leaders were selected, it was usually left to the parliamentary uh, body of the party. So it would be MPs who from amongst themselves would select the leader of the party. And if that leader of the party uh, was the leader of the majority in the House, they would become, uh, you know, prime minister. But what we've seen over the last 40 years is a shift within political parties, both in the Labour Party and in the Conservative Party, towards more democratic modes of selecting uh, leaders of political parties. And for the Labour Party, the parliamentary uh, wing were super upset because the Labour leadership elected Jeremy Corbyn, uh, sorry, the Labour membership elected Jeremy Corbyn. Um, they elected someone more radical. And the same dynamic exists in the Conservative Party. I mean, obviously, I'm kind of more inclined to someone like Jeremy Corbyn than I am to like a lunatic from the Conservative Party. But you have this disconnect between what Ralph calls the political class. You want a kind of safe pair of hands. uh, And then the um, membership that often pushes in a more radical direction. So the democratization of party leadership um, uh, selection over the last 40 years has really upended kind of political dynamics. And I think what we might be seeing, I think discourse, you're quite right about this. I think the Conservative Party has some mechanisms to avoid having a leadership vote put to the membership. And they're going to try and engineer something where it's a fait accompli behind the scenes, smoke filled back rooms so that they don't have to go back to the membership who are going to elect someone like Ralph says, who is an absolute lunatic culture war warriors, who's going to like, who's, and, and let's be clear about this. These people on the conservative right are importing directly American cultural war paradigms into the British politics. When you have lunatics in the parliament talking about like critical race theory, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Right. This is like totally not really. And, and, you know, it spread, it spreads to also like people. I mean, I have friends in Hull who are now QAnon, right? So what? like this, I have a, I have a friend, I'm not going to name him. Uh, he may have at one point taken a little bit too many psychedelics and he's like totally a QAnon guy right now. But so these culture wars are getting injected into like the veins of Britain. And I don't think like, I don't think like the, even the conservative mainstream, however right wing it is in the parliament, I don't think they're ready for that. I don't think they necessarily think that's a good path to go. A- any thoughts, discourse? I-, I think all they care about is getting elected next year, and they don't want to alienate people <laughs> too much, right? Because as MPs, ultimately, they just want to get elected. And you have to remember that a lot of these MPs are new MPs in areas that traditionally did not vote for conservatives. There's a lot of red wall conservatives who got in in 2019 under Boris Johnson because there was a leveling up promise made to lots of deprived northern areas to say that we would be investing in those areas following the Brexit vote. And I think someone like Liz Truss then coming in to immediately start cutting 
taxes for the sort of 0.5% was just a bad look. It was a bad optics for those types of MPs. They didn't, the backbenchers did not want this whatsoever. Ralph? Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> what more can you add to the increasing absurdity of the the Tories? Um, I think I'm not sure how this will play out because you know a, a lot of the Red Wall people, you were Red Wall Tory voters for Johnson, were once upon a time Labour vote, voters. They were, in, you know. They would have voted for the the Labour Party, and and now they are more swing voters. Like, you know, and it, it's it, and it's a, there's a very similar dynamic that went on in Scotland because Scotland used to be a very Labour, you know, heavy place, but then they just got wiped out by the SNP, and the SNP basically now owns Scotland, and as well another tremor of brexit is the question of scotland where mm. scotland could you know separate you know, <clears throat> it's plausible very plausible you know and, and, and can can you explain to uh, our listeners in america who probably don't know what is exactly what do you mean by the red wall it's um the it's the places in mainly northern and central england so like around the former sort of industrial areas like around Wigan, Manchester, Liverpool, not the cities themselves, but the places surrounding them, Yorkshire, places like that, that were very quite working class cities and towns that used to vote for Labour. But then in the more recent years have now started to swing towards the Tories. And okay. were void for Brexit as well. Many of those areas also did. And discuss like to follow up. You know, Ralph mentioned Scotland. How is any of this affecting politics in Northern Ireland? Uh, yes, massively. So we've begun to see. I mean, not necessarily this, but I think this entire kind of uh, since Brexit, right, and the the rise of English nationalism has definitely fueled. Uh, nationalism in Northern Ireland. There's been, for the first time in history, I think it was in 2019, there was a majority of people in favor of a united Ireland rather than maintaining the union with Britain and the United Kingdom. So I, I, I they have turned. So Brexit as a as a as a project has turned the idea of a united Ireland, of Northern Ireland joining with Republic of Ireland, from a sort of a, a kind of foolish dream a utopian vision into what looks to be almost like a concrete reality now as time has gone on and as the pretty as the as the english have begun to seemingly implode uh, with their political institutions falling apart uh united Ireland looks to be more more of a safe bet honestly do you think i mean is a united island uh possible i mean would the would the republic of ireland for example want to take on Northern Ireland, would uh, what kind of arrangement do you think might become possible for a united Ireland? You know, what would it leave, what would it look like? Well, I, I don't think the so I mean, there's that famous, famously, uh, the Republic of Ireland uh, at the time of World War Two agreed to join with Britain against Nazi Germany if Britain 
uh, or, or Britain tried, Churchill tried to reach out to the, Repub the Republic of Ireland to try and get them to join join him against uh, Nazi Germany, and they uh, and he he offered to them Northern Ireland in payment that they could there could be United Ireland, and they famously said no, no thanks, uh, we don't want Northern Ireland. It is a <laughs> it is a bit of a mess. Uh, but I think these days, as much as the executive might not want it, I think that dem democratically, I think. The majority of people in the Republic of Ireland would be in favor of a united Ireland, yes. Uh, just culturally, I think historically, it's just something that ideologically people people would like to see the united Ireland, uh, the island uh, being united under one. Uh, whether or not that's going to actually happen, I'm not too sure. I mean, we're talking about something that would take place, you know, in maybe 10 years or so. This is very much far into the future. It's just remarkable that we're going from, say, 20% of people in the country wanting a united Ireland to now 60%. It, it, it's quite a remarkable jump so it, it, it would be an irony of history that it was brexit that undid the partition of ireland yeah it would, would same with ironic. same with scotland and and the rising nationalism in scotland and well as well that has been totally fueled by brexit people want to rejoin the eu and this is the uh, we didn't vote for brexit no one in northern ireland there was not a majority of people in favor of brexit in northern ireland same for scotland the, it, it brexit as an enterprise felt fundamentally undemocratic to people who weren't living in england and one of the issues of brexit was the border between northern yeah. ireland and ireland because at least when you were part of the customs union that border wasn't so much of a problem because you could just go in and out quite easily but then once you leave the eu you have to put a border between northern ireland and ireland and that that would have been a mess trying to do that well not and to get into the weeds yeah. but i mean fundamentally it undermines the good friday agreement which is yeah. the agreement that brought peace to northern ireland and this was talked about a lot in the lead up to brexit and was patently ignored by those in favor of brexit it was just ignored as an issue as a non-issue when it fundamentally is a is a massive constitutional problem that obviously has acted to become a thorn in the side of brexit and another another interesting aspect of it was the more uh, fanatical unionist party in Northern Ireland had to join with the Conservatives just to make a majority uh, to bolster their majority and that sort of made the whole thing more complicated because they're not because they do not want to leave the union as they call it yeah <laughs> mm -hmm. they don't want to border down the Irish Sea yeah. so it's it's in this intractable situation but but as a result the the unionist party for the first time ever have lost the, their premiership as first minister and now refuse to sit in government. So in Northern Ireland, we don't have a government because the unionist party are refusing to, to sit. And because of our certain rules, there has to be a unionist party and a nationalist party governing. And so the unionist party are refusing to sit because the nationalist party are now bigger. The, 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 the nationalist party are bigger now than the unionist party. And also I would note that uh, Sinn Féin is also a major political force south of mm -hmm. the border in Ireland. Yeah. So there there are political forces across Ireland that the political establishment in the Republic of Ireland are opposed to. Sinn Féin is definitely, I would say, a party that is seen beyond the pale by Ireland's kind of political establishment. They're rising in power in the South as well. So there are, you know, let's say, counter-hegemonic political forces within both the North and the South of Ireland that are kind of pushing towards 
a unification of Ireland. Maybe Star Trek will be correct. I don't know if you know. Star 2024. Trek, 2024 could be the date. They actually, I don't know if you know this, Pascal, but Star Trek, they talk, they have a line where they go, the unification of Ireland in 2024. And that was censored by the British government. Uh, that Like that part of Star Trek was censored by the British government. Really? Because Britain used to censor the uh they used to censor the nationalist politicians in ireland like jerry adams Uh, and they would basically the the idea was they were like oh you can't have them on tv doing propaganda and so the british government was like oh yeah we'll we'll just get the news readers will just do a summary of what they said and you won't hear them but what the news uh the, the the news companies did and the bbc did they would just have a more charismatic actor read the words of jerry adams uh uh, like live on uh uh you know live on so like jerry adams for me as a child it was like this very charismatic irish guy and when i finally heard his voice he was like very boring he was like a very boring person but they'd wow. have like some very enthusiastic actor they used to have a joke on it i think on the day to day or brass eye where it's like due to broadcasting regulations uh, uh seamus mcmahon's uh voice will be edited by inhaling helium or something like that but yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the questions I want to ask is that it seems like what's happening is that Brexit has cannibalized so much of British politics that all of this is coming to coming to. I mean, didn't people foresee this? Wasn't it obvious oh. to people that when when this was going to be done, the the internal contradictions were going to become more and more explicit. The- the irony of this is that the entire Brexit vote was originally called to unify the Conservative Party because the idea of leaving the EU had been a thorn in the Conservative Party's side for almost 10, 20 years. David Cameron, so many moons ago in like 2014, called the vote for Brexit because he wanted there to be a he basically wanted to settle the question so the conservative party would no longer be bickering amongst itself whether or not it was pro or against the eu because there was two wings of the conservative party one that was against the eu and one that was in favor of being in the eu and unfortunately because everyone assumed that the remain faction would win because they were the establishment faction they had all of the facts behind them it was obviously a terrible idea to leave the eu and unfortunately the leave the leave side lost which has now completely thrown all of british politics into complete disarray and what what brexit did was completely like blow away the British constitutional settlement as it has been understood since as far back as 1689, you know, the glorious revolution where we've had this sort of, you know, compromise between, you know, the parliament, the crown, how we sort of settled these things, you know, and the status of Scotland and Ireland and Brexit just blew them out of the water and nobody knows how to manage it how we even resolve it because at some point something's gonna have to give on this i mean i think this is a really interesting point because you know there are there are a number of people on the left who make the case that you know for all its problems brexit is a positive uh, development it's like the re-establishment of national sovereignty in britain etc etc you know uh, but you know i can't help but say uh, think that this is kind of delusional in the sense that while you could in theory um 
conceive of a, like a radical left-wing Brexit, uh, that was never on the cards, right? It's like, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've said this about the abolition of the monarchy. It's like, obviously, in principle, the abolition of the monarchy would be a big step forward. But, um, you know, if it was abolished today by, let's say, you know, a kind of uh, a, a centrist Labour government, all it would be would be like an opportunity to like for Guardian columnists to pat themselves on the back that now Britain was run by uh, a, 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 yeah. A, yeah, like the pr prime minister was a son of a Trinidadian immigrant who worked their way <laughs> up, got, worked their way up in the city of London and, you know, was a Barclays Bank executive. And it would just be like a kind of like, you know, like, oh, look how diverse we are. But, you know, the, the actual political structures remain the same you still you know you, you still have that thing and the same th i think of as brexit it's like you could theorize that there could have been a left-wing brexit but it it strikes me that you know ultimately this has been a bonanza for like the free marketeer right and i'm not sure how you know like i'm not in print i wasn't in principle against like brexit under any conditions i was just very skeptical that there could be actually a meaningful left-wing version of brexit given the distribution of forces the eu is nothing to like be feel emotionally attached to yeah. but it's also i mean so, so I, will, I will say one interesting contradiction <laughs> of brexit was a lot of the arguments in favor for it was about immigration mm -hmm. and that was the big thing about it and the irony is that ever since brexit we've had more immigration and from more places as a result of it and that sort of pissed off the more right-wing national sovereignist wing of the right, saying, no, this is not what we asked for. This is not the Brexit we asked for. We wanted to control our borders. You know, Instead, we're having more people come in. Like, legally, this is legal immigration I'm talking about. Because structurally, Britain has to have it. Like, it can't, even if it wanted to restrict it, it can't, it just can't. Because it would be economic self-mutilation if it tried to seriously reduce immigration to tens of thousands a year like every Tory prime minister says but then it goes up and that's what and that alienates the base even more and radicalizes them even more yeah but I suppose this goes to the heart of what Brexit was though which was a mystery box nobody nobody actually knew what they were voting for everyone voted for Brexit for different reasons uh, there was never actually a political enterprise like the project set out as to what Brexit actually was it was just this vague notion of of sovereignty and that was it there was no there was there was nothing to it so everyone voted for it for different reasons some people voted for it just to annoy the political establishment like some members of my family well, let me ask you a question how have these contretemps, if you will, affected the ability of Brit the British to project power internationally? Because none of this stopped Boris Johnson from flexing on the Ukrainians when they were talking about they wanted to negotiate peace with the Russians. It, I mean, how has this affected, <clears throat> excuse me, the ability uh, of Great Britain to influence affairs? within its sphere of influence. Discourse mm. can go first on that. Well, the, I think the fact of the matter is I'm not too sure. Uh, the, it, I mean, obviously, Britain has always had this reputation for being rational, like a pretty rational co 
sort of political establishment, a pretty stable one. And I think Brexit absolutely undermined that, pulled the rug from underneath a lot of the international sort of perspectives, for sure. Gene, do you have any thoughts? I mean, I think, I, I think, um, I think, interestingly enough, I would say like Boris Johnson's attempt to really get involved in the U Ukraine crisis was precisely a product of the weakness of Britain, and an, it, it was a deliberate attempt to assert Britain's international position in a post-Brexit world where, as Discourse says, the reputation, whether deserved or not, that the British establishment is a rational, safe pair of hands on the global stage, where that is in crisis, well, uh, this was a way for the, uh, you know, Boris Johnson to project British strength on an international uh, uh, level. And Britain does have some leverage in, within Europe at least in military military terms, Britain has a large military industrial complex. Britain has a relatively large mil military for the European, you know, for the European uh, political context. But ultimately, I think Boris Johnson's attempt <coughs> to become involved in Ukraine was as much for domestic consumption as it was for uh, trying. It was to show that hey, we're still a big player on the world. We still matter. People care about what we uh, what we think. And so, you know. Uh, Britain is trying to project that image internationally, and that affects uh, the disposition Boris Johnson took overseas. But ultimately, you know, I think, you know, it's a it's a sign of weakness rather than strength. I think often, you know, we forget this. I think foreign policy adventures are often signs of political weakness at home, as opposed to being signs of political strength. You want to think of historical examples. Why does Russia attack Japan in 1904? Because they're in crisis, right? Uh, you know, you look even, around. Yeah, go ahead. Ralph. Even why? Even why they attacked Ukraine today? There is, yeah, you, that that regime is in crisis, and they exported it into Ukraine, and it's not gonna like well, however way this concludes. Like Russia is gonna go, a lot of change is gonna come out of it, and yeah, and. And for Boris Johnson, like Ukraine has served as a bit of a distraction because every time there was a scandal coming up in Britain, then an impromptu trip to Ukraine and he would embrace Zelensky as a PR thing. Yeah. <laughs> that guy was one of the luckiest people I've ever seen in my life. He was oh, made out of Teflon. I swear to God, Boris Johnson, every single time. There was some sort of issue. He'd managed to skate by on some world event that would occur, you know, that would get him completely out of whatever crisis it was that was in, in my well, you, government. You know, uh, well, do you want to know the interesting connection Boris has to the Ottoman Empire? He's descended from a gentleman known as uh, Ali Kemal. Ali Kemal was an, op was, a, was an opponent of the Young Turks who took over the Ottoman Empire in 1908. And then after the First World War, he became an interior minister. Uh, he was very kind of lucky for a bit, but he issued the arrest warrant for Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, ended up getting lynched outside of a courthouse. So, you know, you luck only works until it runs out. So, you know. Swings and roundabouts. Swings, swings and roundabouts. <laughs> swings and roundabouts, exactly. So, and, I'm, yeah. so no, I'll just, just, just want to add that. Boris Johnson, when he left 
compared himself to the Roman general um, Sinaticus, who then returned to power as a military dictator. And now Boris Johnson wanted to uh, come back to Britain. So, <laughs> well, is there is there a chance? I mean, we were talking about this a little bit off air, but is there a chance Boris might come back? I mean, we've heard like rumblings and rumors that there could be a Boris return. Do you think that's a plausible thing? But Boris is a political opportunist, so I would never underestimate what it is that Boris Johnson will try to do. Boris Johnson has no integrity whatsoever. Like he doesn't care. He will he will try anything if he thinks that there's a feasible chance. I I personally I don't think that there is a chance for him. Uh, the only the only reason why I think there might be is if a lot of the uh, sort of red wall MPs in Parliament believe that because Boris Johnson was elected in 2019 and that he had kind of spearheaded their success that the people within their constituencies might want to vote for Boris Johnson again at a general election in two years. That, or rather for the party led by Boris Johnson. That's the only reason why. Otherwise, I think the establishment and conservative party would prefer to go with Rishi Sunak as a sea of pair of hands. Yeah, I Ralph? think I, it's, it's possible. It's not impossible, but I think the Tory establishment think he's just a, he's just, he's just has too much baggage with him. For it to work this time like i in the for, for the position they are in they can't take any stupid risks like they need someone they think is reliable who can do what is required for them and i think that's rishi sunak because mm. he's in he's he's tried and tested in the sense that he's an ex-chancellor so he knows how to do things but is in a sense he he's fresh enough that he's not Boris Johnson and he's not Liz Trust. So like he's somebody that I think will do what is required for them. Is it, is it, a, is it an attacking metaphor to say that Rishi Sunak is the uh, Obama of the Tories? <laughs> I don't know if they're a one-to-one, honestly. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they're a one-to-one. Well, um, Gee, Obama was a, we- Obama like was huh? I mean, like I don't. Yeah, I don't think he. I wouldn't say he's an Obama of the Tories. I. I think um, he is. I think. I mean, I think discourse and Ralph put it quite simply. He is a safe pair of hands. Um, he is. Obama was at least in terms of his disposition, kind of like someone who was promising big change. Rishi Sunak. The reason you would appoint him as the Tory leader would because would be because he offers some kind of stability. He's, kind, he's a kind of boring bank manager type person. He's like, you know, he's just he's he's like a he's like a posh boy. He's like a you know, just because he's brown doesn't mean like he's uh, super radical or anything like that. Um, you know, he's just a wealthy financier guy who was chancellor. He's someone who the Tories can work with he's not an ideologue which is important he's willing to pump money into the economy for political reasons he's not going to you know he's not going to like adopt these kind of neo-thatcherite hard policies that spook he will be a good faithful servant of the city of london right he will be a good uh, a, a pair of hands for the financial elites that run the country and that support the conservative party um his disadvantage i mean and also you know the fact that he's of South Asian origin in some ways could be an advantage. 
it kind of defangs the kind of like, oh, the Tories are the white racist party discourse. At the same time, though, you know, it could also trigger some of the conservative base who, again, uh, have, let's just say, um, old fashioned ideas about people's appropriate places in British society. But I think overall, you know, he's probably uh, uh, the safest bet because I think uh, conservatively inclined members of the British middle class um, would probably feel comfortable with him. I mean, there is racism in Britain, but like I think often we overemphasize the question of racism in t- determining how people vote. Uh, you know, people, I think, I mean, like that you could. And we saw this in America. You could have people who might have like on the might say like inappropriate things about ethnic minorities, but would vote Obama because they want to get the health care. Right. You know, people say all kinds of things and have all kinds of contradictory ideas. And the conservative party is like quite diverse at the top in some ways. It's the base, which is the issue in terms of, you know, in terms of that. Ralph, you know, in other words, what you're saying is that the British political, the real politics <laughs> in Britain doesn't have the same kind of machinations as it does in the United States in terms of race and that the utility of of of, uh, of uh, Rishi Sunak to the British political system would never really be able to materialize in the way in which Obama works as a way of preserving at a time of crisis the exigences of capital and finance. So Rishi Sunak would be more of a status quo kind of like keep the keep the trains running on time kind of thing that wouldn't really shock or surprise anyone. There'd be no awe that would come with the fact that it's like, oh my God, mate, we have an Indian prime minister. That's amazing. You know, that wouldn't be the, that that kind of, that doesn't resonate in the in the, in the British consciousness in the same way. Not really. I mean, you, I, I suppose you'll find some people at the Telegraph who might lap it up a bit and sort of use it as a stick to beat Labour with maybe but it's not really going to be that big a deal (laughs) because we've i I think because britain's sort of gone through it a bit with when the first um batch of tory like uh cabinet ministers came like braverman and uh nadim zahawi like quasi people like we kind of sort of got through that whole oh we've had our first you know, Asian chancellor, blah, blah, blah. And it was the Tories yeah. that did it. And it was the Tories yeah. that did it. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and they'll say, oh, we had our first woman prime minister with Mrs. Thatcher. Th- three. Yeah. Dilly Meal had that, I think. Three yeah. three female prime ministers for the Conservatives. Zero for Labour was on the yeah. front page of the Dilly <laughs> Meal when Liz Truss was elected. I mean, this is, this is really the end point of kind of like liberal identity politics. It's like the Conservatives end up doing it better than you do because there's no content beyond like look we have brown faces in high places look at that you know guess what if you're a black financier you're going to behave like a black financier you know black skin doesn't make you like oh, a radical it doesn't yeah. turn you into what what do you call it the magical black man right yeah the magical negro yeah the magical yeah. negro exactly and that's it's, it's it's quite interesting how the toys sort of do this because there's an there's an old like election Poster they once had in 1983, where it had like this black man in a suit, and he says, and it says something like, "Labour thinks he's black, we say he's British." Wow, <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a very American kind of uh, right-wing talking point. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, 
and they because their whole thing is like no we accept we don't we're colorblind we don't do this identities politics stuff that's magical yeah jason has shared a comment that's supposed to be that is allegedly uh from uh bannon stephen bannon where he's saying that as long as the liberals talk about identity politics and race and racism <laughs> we've got them because all we were all we worried about is economic nationalism as long as they talk about race and racism we're in a great position because the, and the it tells you because the play that the conservatives no, no, make is that it's that the liberals that are obsessed with race, not the conservatives. Well, the Tory <clears throat> party has gone a long way since they ran that campaign. If you want an N word for your neighbor, vote Labour. Um, you know, <laughs> wow. But, you know, that yeah. was a that was a campaign. But even the conservatives purged that guy. You know, like that campaign led to the purging of the guy who ran it. So yeah. you know they've been playing this kind of civic nationalism, colorblind civic nationalism for a, a while. There's always been, you know, there's always a, obviously a racial dimension to a conservative politics in Britain, but it's really, I don't think it's as foregrounded as people might assume. You know, well, they I think, were they were always known as the nasty party, mm-hmm. but they David Cameron in the 2000s took a lot of pains to modernize the conservative party to brand them as as a more friendly party to everybody a more welcoming more inclusive party he tried to make the tory party seem to be uh more of a sort of liberal uh you know inclusive kind of project and it worked it worked in a lot of ways it was actually very true because then they all they went into coalition with the liberal democrats who are a you know they are ultra liberal party and uh and so i mean it was it was a successful one i think and the the Tories um, do. If you want to talk about race in Britain, I think you have to. It's not skin color as such. It's more like a multicultural nationalism against, say, migrants or even uh, Muslims. Because you'll find the Tories played this weird game where they play divide and rule among sort of migrant communities. So they'll say like Hindus and Sikhs, they're the good migrants we accept but pakistani muslims no they're the bad ones they're the degenerates terrorists etc etc so you know tories have been quite adept at using identity politics and playing divide and ruler with it for a long time yeah i mean i think that's a really important thing to understand you know you have within the migrant communities in the united uh, kingdom serious political divides indians and pakistanis major problems go to North London, it's Kurds and Turks, you know, like you have all kinds of these cleavages where the conservatives can actually do very well in particular communities. Like if you're uh, an East African Asian, you know, some one mm-hmm. of the people that Idi Amin kicked out, uh, you're probably a Tory, right? You know, it's like very yeah. lightly you're a conservative Be- uh, because, you know, of the particular history of like different migrant communities have different relationships to the British state, to the British empire, to British history. And, you know, you can't just, uh, I think sometimes some on the left in Britain, like try to homogenize the the migrant experience in the UK and homogenize the different communities when it's like a very, there's very dis, different dispositions of different communities towards uh, their British identity and what it means to be British. But yeah. with that point, yeah. go ahead, go yeah. Ralph. No, because just recently in Leicester, there was a bit of a riot between 
Hindus and Muslims, where you know the you know the far right sort of Hindu nationalists and you know the BJP types would like attack uh, <laughs> these a mosque and they sort of chanted these anti-Muslim slogans and then you know the reaction would be the Muslims would you know mobilize against them and they you know and then you would have this sort of intersectarian sort of chanting against each other and obviously for a lot of people who are not of those communities it doesn't quite make sense because especially you know for some people on the left like when we talk about race riots it's usually white black but then when it comes to like you know um antagonisms within like people of color communities like it just it doesn't make sense to them yeah i i remember when uh, you know we were in green lanes north london we had to defend our kebab shops against the uh, the black hordes coming in to try and uh, destroy them you know it's like you have all these uh, you have all these like uh, micro rivalries in particular like for example in brixton there's a conflict between uh, kurds and black people why is that because all the kurds run all the small shops and the kebab shops like are all the, like petty bourgeoisie and mm -hmm. they're always like have these negative opinions about black people like oh they're all coming into shoplift and things like that so you have all these kind of class uh, uh, and, and the tories you know they pioneered this divide and rule technique in the british empire like uh, even did... even 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 among black people like for example i'm nigerian and you do find like among like west africans against say caribbeans there yep. is that little yes. like tension because they see caribbeans as a bit degenerate rootless you know <laughs> that sort of we thing we have well, our versions of that in the united states too yeah while we West Africans were like, we're, you know, we've got our families together. We're very sort of prim and proper. You know, we have our culture, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, mean, like, and, and even within, like, I remember, like, my brother's flatmate, she was uh, of Kenyan origin, hated Nigerians, hated Nigerians <laughs> with passion. You know, so like, there's, uh, so like, it's so easy to present racial politics in Britain as being like one side or the other. But it looks a lot more like, I mean, I don't know if you'd agree with this discourse, it looks a lot more like Northern Ireland. Because like in Northern Ireland, if you're a, if you're like an outsider, it's like, wait, these people are like, they all sound the same, right? Uh, they all pretty much look the same. Some of them have orange flags. Some of them don't have orange flags. But like, what's the difference, right? And, uh, you know, the same applies. It's like all these South Asians, they're all Desis. What's the difference? Well, like, there's a lot of history here and there's a lot of differences between these small uh, uh these communities which you don't you, you don't necessarily see like you know kurds and turks in north london if you just look at a person can you tell if they're kurdish or turkish you, you might guess that they're from maybe they're kurds maybe they're turks but like you can't like point at someone and say you're definitely kurdish or definitely turkish you can't point at a black person and say you're definitely nigerian you're definitely uh caribbean and so I think there's a, what do they call it in Britain? BIPOC. Is it BIPOC? No, not BIPOC. They have a word. B-A-M-E. Yeah, B-A-M-E. They have like this kind of like totalizing word, which is used by liberalism. And this is a kind of the question I want to get to uh, like now is, you know, we've talked about the kind of mess of the conservative party, but also some of their strengths. 
What about labor in the post-Corbyn era? Because it's, uh, you know, like, uh, it's been a kind of interesting show. I mean, like, I will be honest. I'm like, uh, I'm still a member of the Labour Party, largely because I just forgot to cancel my direct debit. But, you know, like, I still get their letters and emails. But, um, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Corbynism because it offered something new. Whether you believe Corbynism was ever a going concern or not is, you know, not the point. It offered a kind of vision of a Britain that could be a little bit different. Keir Starmer comes along and we're kind of given this, uh, we're given this story of how, um, you know, like, uh, you know, people, people voted for Keir Starmer, I think, because people were like, oh, we wanted someone with the presentation of Tony Blair, but the politics of Jeremy Corbyn, but we got someone with the like presentation of Jeremy Corbyn and the politics of Tony Blair. So what's going on in the Labour Party? How are you feeling? Uh, you know, how, how are the Labour Party? What are you doing on here? Dude? Oh. <laughs> oh, look at that. It's deep bad. We've just got, but we just got, uh, we just got raided by Jason. Hello, Jason. Welcome. But well, look, look, look. Vaughn is here. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Well, well, we can't. We're better at raiding here. Hold on, we got. We're getting. We're getting. It's getting. A, it's a. It's a back. We're in San Diego right now, getting ready to do stuff for the live show. We're uh, we're watching you guys talk about the UK. My dad is so confused. <laughs> Are we confused? What have you thought you about with... it so far? Yeah, let's get some opinions. So how? Uh, it's been. It's actually been very, very good. Uh, I'm I'm learning a lot about British politics. I'm celebrating the end of the country. It's Derek's day, Gene and, and Pascal. It's Derek's birthday. Oh, happy, oh, happy birthday, Devon! Thanks. So, Gene, take me off the screen. I can't. <laughs> there we go. Jason just can't help himself. He's he's just so excited. But yeah, let's talk about Labour. Do you want do you want to go first, Ralph? Uh, what's going on with Labour? Do you love Keir Starmer? Do you like his style? He sounds to me, maybe I'm wrong, does he not re um, remind you of, like, um, what's his name in the, the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when he talks? That's like who he sounds <laughs> like to me. Um, uh, Starmer. Um, he... <laughs> That's usually the response, yes. <laughs> like, he's... I'm sorry, but he is... He's, like... A lot of people like him. Or the part, the, the Labour right, I should be more specific, like him because he's not Jeremy Corbyn and because he sort of kicked out like some of the people who came into the party when Corbyn um, like uh, became leader. And he has, you know, and he's like this very dull, very generic liberal technocrat. That's that's really what he is like, <laughs> and if and if he was, because I said he is the PM by default, like, and all of this is just postponing the inevitable, and if he was to become the PM, you're not really gonna see the kind of radical, at least from the left, radical sort of program that you would need because. The way things have just developed, especially with Liz Trust, the calamity of it, the Overton window, what would be acceptable, 
for especially for the financial elites and you know the Bank of England and people like that is now even narrower than it was before. So then Keir Starmer would come in and he would he would talk a good game, even though he would put it in, in a very dull style. But what we we would actually see would be a very conservative, pragmatic, like economic program, which wouldn't oh, deal with crisis. Well, that sounds like what you're telling me is that the, the neoliberal consensus in Great Britain is bipartisan and inevitable. Yes. <laughs> well, more, more Corbyn, or less, yes. Like in, in my lifetime, Corbyn was the only opportunity I saw for actual change to British politics. Uh, British politics has been mired by allegations that the Conservatives and Labour were both the same, basically two sides of the exact same coin, since Tony Blair and, and New Labour. Uh, throughout my entire life as someone who was politically interested, that's always been the case, uh, to such an extent that the Liberal Democrats, who often were seen as the centrist party, were squeezed out of the middle because there was no place for them to occupy anymore to distinguish themselves between the Conservatives and New Labour. It wasn't until 2016 and the... Uh, and Brexit, where the Tories swung to the right, and Corbyn then took the Labour Party to the left, substantially, that we actually saw two different ideologies go up against one another. One of the interesting aspects of that to me was that often what I heard was that Corbyn's policies were extremely popular on the doorstop, doorstep, but that Corbyn as a person was had been politically toxified by the establishment press of the British media. Uh, and, and, and that was super problematic. And so now we have Keir Starmer, a man who has no opinions, who has no position other than to say that he is not the Conservative Party, that he is he's not within. He doesn't have a crisis ongoing right now in his party. He doesn't have any issues uh, because he mostly took over the party and ejected everyone who did not agree with his, uh, I would say, like new labor style of, of government uh, completely. So the so, you know, we don't really see any opportunity. I mean, what's going to happen? I guess, in my opinion, is that uh, Keir Starmer, if he comes to power, is going to be administering austerity. Like whoever's in power is going to be administering austerity. It's just maybe there'll be a little less austerity with Labour. Uh, maybe they'll make more sad faces when they're doing the cuts. You know, they'll be like, "Oh, it's really sad that we have to do these cuts." Rather than saying, look, these cuts are going to make people, you know, make this British state lean. They're going to say it's a hard decision. But ultimately, Britain's going to, you're going to have a Labour Party that's going to administer austerity and probably become unpopular very quickly if the if the Conservatives can get their act together in a post-Conservative uh, uh, government era. Yeah, and if Starmer fails, which is would be highly likely that would cement more Tory dominance when they come back in because what the Tories live on is sort of presenting Labour as this sort of fiscally irresponsible, you know, wacky sort of party that's sort of tearing down our country. You know, they hate our country. They want to destroy our, you know, sell our national sovereignty to the EU. And that's what they live on. And if Starmer sort of lives up to that, then that would, when the Tories come back in, that would just increase their dominance. Because they've been in power for 12 years now, through several iterations, but it's been Tory dominated. And if Starmer comes in, 
and he can't and he just implodes which is which is which could very well happen then and then the Tories could come back in with someone new and they'll say no we're gonna bring this under control you know yeah and that it it it, it it's not looking good for the future it really isn't so what's i mean more generally then on the level of british society you know we've talked about the political establishment we are seeing though some like interesting developments like we saw the railway strikes which uh you know mickey lynch adeptly handled the establishment press uh mm-hmm. and managed to maintain public support for those strikes we're seeing more generally strikes taking place we're seeing protests and organizations in face of the cost of living crisis you know outside of the organized political parties within civil society within broader general british politics you know what uh, are there any hopeful developments because you know i would say this labor militancy is pretty important especially the railway workers because uh you know i've lived in london and i'll tell you this unless you have a helicopter if the trains go on strike you're screwed you can be a millionaire but you're not going to get from kensington to the city of london very easily without a functioning tube so they have an enormous amount of power to put the pain on like most sections of british society including the upper class uh you know so what kind of you know what kind of developments would you say are happening on the ground how are people reacting to this crisis would you say outside of uh politics outside of like formal politics um i would say there was there was also a movement in glasgow that about the cost of living prices that they would burn their gas and energy bills and just refuse to pay it and this is the labor movement is like the glimmer of hope in this because they're the only ones that really have shown or demonstrated any kind of leadership that is equivalent to the crisis we are facing that understands what we're in and trying to do something positively about it and you know like you said rmt and mick lynch the uh, you know Big James Connolly fan, by the way, he is <laughs> explicitly for just for the Irish. There, um, so you know, I don't know. It's and it's only within like the workplace that you see this kind of organization and sort of at least a consciousness that we something radical and drastic has to be done to get britain out of this slump that it's in it's hard to overestimate i think sometimes though how much of an impact that the british press have on things uh and how militantly against any sort of union activity that the press are for example uh in the uh, mid 2010s during the elections to see who would succeed i think it was uh gordon brown ed miliband and david miliband ran against each other as leader of the the labor party and ed miliband won as a result of the uh, unions voting in favor of him and he was therefore labeled as red ed by the uh by the british press now 
I don't know. Uh, I mean, let's not go into Ed Miliband too much, but this guy is a very demure kind of guy. He's not he's not a radical in any sense of the imagination whatsoever. He can't, eat a ba- always... he can't eat a bacon <laughs> sandwich, though. Like they, they, they murdered him over eating a bacon sandwich yeah. badly. Which really should have been a canary in the coal mine, I think, for how they dealt with Corbin, right? That they would find, they would continue to look for something until something stuck, and then they would hammer that forever until, you know, inevitably it kind of worked. Uh, so I don't think, I mean, one of the things I like to see kind of this union activity, I like to see, you know, conditions for workers be made better on the ground materially. I like to see things be made better, but I don't think that it actually reflects any changes to the political systems that we're going to see in Britain. Is this media influence a consequence of the Rupert, the Rupert Murdochification of British media? I think all of this can be can be laid at the feet of, of, of Murdoch. I think Brexit, I think all, all, basically the implosion of British politics uh, can, can all be traced back to Murdoch. Wow, we should have a show on Murdoch, man. That would be an interesting show. I, I, I mean, okay, hot take. I, I think that Murdoch is potentially one of the most dangerous things to have happened to humanity uh, as a whole <laughs> in, in, ever. I think it's potentially one of the worst things to have ever happened. Murdoch as an individual. I mean, I, I would have I would have a slightly different take on that. I mean, I think the British press is really important, uh, but I think the British press is not it's not just it's not simply that it's leading the public opinion in a particular way, but rather there's a kind of mass impulse and discontent with the existing order, and they're able to manipulate that in a particular way that they want it to go. The the, the anger and the discontent is there. But they kind of are very good at framing a, narr- uh, a, a framing a narrative which d- directs things in in a particular way. And what I found fascinating about Lynch and the RMT was um, Lynch was able to defend the RMT very well in, 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 in such a good way that they stopped having him on the TV because he was absolutely. Uh, I mean, there was all these memes about uh, him, like, handing people their asses. It's like, would you like your ass? You know, uh, he was crushing them on TV. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that, you know, there was all these pieces about, whoa, why is Mickey Lynch so good at, like, dealing with the press? Why is he so good at this? It's like simple. Mickey Lynch is a guy who's a trade union leader who spent all his life getting working class people to vote for him within a trade union bureaucracy. So when it comes to talking to working class people, there's no magic media strategy. It's just what he does. And it's just, he's able to frame things in a particularly powerful way that people in the intelligentsia or the political class, even if they have a kind of right political instinct, are unable to do because they haven't spent their entire career talking to working class people and you know winning working class people over in a union election and that's what made him like that's that there's no there's no secret media strategy to it it's like and this is why i think it's important like any political change you know that comes in britain has to come from a a, a linkage with the working class because only from the working i mean i'm not saying that you like middle class intellectuals are not important to a political movement you know you go back in history so many of the political leaders of the left have been from middle class educated uh, 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 families, but like them by themselves, they can't run a movement. You have to have like organic ties with the working class and you have to have leaders who are able 
to like speak on a visceral level with uh, uh, working class people. Like all the they try to put all this crap on this guy. They try to like call him the bad guy from the Thunderbirds. That you know, like they did all these like we and he just like he just was so able to deal with them because he 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 knew who he was talking to, and he was willing to make you know like make the establishment press upset. I mean, what are your thoughts on that uh, discourse, and Ralph? Any thoughts? Um, <clears throat> I would say Mick Lynch is what Nigel Farage thinks he is, like mm. as the straight talking <laughs> geezer who, who doesn't sort of abide by the sort of constricted political PR vocabulary that you see on mainstream media because he's so he he you can tell he just he's never sort of encountered it before and he just says what's on his mind and he says it in a very straight simple very direct uh way like uh, that interview he did with um andrew neil who's <laughs> one of the sort of mandarins of the mainstream media and he when andrew neil basically tried to sort of say well, are you a marxist or not you know <laughs> And Nick Lynch just sort of batted it away very simply. It's like it, that, that doesn't matter. Well, what matters is the um, like the question of what's happened with the working class. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. Discuss any thoughts on Mick Lynch? You... I, I I think Ralph nailed it. <laughs> I mean, he really he really was quite successful in this. So uh, we're coming up to. Uh, an hour nearly an hour and a half so i just want to kind of like bring it around to some fi final thoughts for everybody about what i mean i'm not asking you to get the crystal balls out but you know what what do you see as the kind of uh direction of the country uh the direction of great britain in this political moment where are we where do you see us heading maybe what's your best case scenario and what's your worst case scenario would you like to begin this course like your best case scenario worst case scenario for me personally or for Britain? For Britain. <laughs> okay, because for me personally, I think at this stage, it's just United Ireland. See you, ya. I'm out of here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just you, untethered. I'm out. Um, hey, well, you know, that is that is a best case scenario. I used to be I used to be a unionist. I used to be a unionist until Brexit. Then uh, then I got an Irish passport along with everybody else in, in, in Northern Ireland, regardless of what their political affiliation is, of whether or not they're a unionist or not. Everybody got a got a got a, an Irish passport, but uh, in terms of in terms of England, I think the best case scenario, as sad as it is to say, is probably that a general election, for whatever freak reason, is called because the Conservatives cannot agree upon a leader in, for some reason, and Keir Starmer gets in. That is unfortunately the best scenario, I think, uh, for for England in the immediate. I think the worst case scenario is that Boris Johnson gets in and wins over the people with his bumbling, clownish style, his pretending to forget speeches and then impromptu giving new ones his uh his entire constructive facade as a as a as a fun court jester uh unfortunately i do believe that that could work again boris johnson is is charismatic in his own way and he takes the party for two years and he does absolutely wild things and then he leads the tory party to a, a successful general election in two years defeating the milk toast Keir starmer leading to a thousand years of tory rule that's the worst case scenario that i can see 
My like word. I said, I, I'm hoping for United Ireland. <laughs> what about you, Ralph? Well, <clears throat> well, I've always been a Republican on the Irish question, uh, mainly because my grandfather is Irish and and was a Republican, and so I am eligible for that Irish. Nice. That's my. Well, look at you guys all ready to Get abandon it. the ship. <laughs> that's my. That's my. You know, veto. Hey. If a sink is shipping, you go for the lifeboat. I'm just saying. That's true. Well, well, look, the best case scenario is, like, is unfortunately that Starmer does become PM and he somehow manages to do the technocratic, stable, stabilizing. They somehow manage to make this situation stable, which, and that's, that's very quixotic. And that's, that, that me saying that's quixotic is saying, telling you how bad the situation is. Um, the worst case scenario is that we just see more of this revolving door policy, whichever whoever is in power, whether it's Tories or Labour, because what you have is now a, a political and economic climate where, because of you know a slow growth and a rising cost of borrowing that any government, right or left, it will be very hampered in what it can do to institute any kind of radical political program because Liz Truss could easily have been Jeremy Corbyn. Like, you know what I mean? Because Jeremy Corbyn could have been PM, tried to, you know, done a radical program, and then the markets freak out saying, no, we don't want this at all. The pound goes through the tubes and then you have a very the political crisis which was which we've now seen and i just think we're going to see more of this because i think the material and structural forces are what's causing this that and it's very hard to break out of it well that's very gloomy well at least britain still has games workshop to keep its export industry alive right you know they can (laughs) they can sell space marines for now how long before you have for they can Britain's economy will be based on selling expensive space marines to to China, I guess. I mean that's the future. It'll so keep pass, me in a job. Keep it'll keep you in a job, discourse. Exactly. So as long as they keep making space marines, discourse will be living it up in United Island with Ralph. Ralph will flee across the Irish Sea, <laughs> you know, claiming his Irish descent. I mean, like I'm stuck because like the Welsh. My my mum's side are Welsh, so like I've just got to hope that the Welsh get their stuff in gear and I can go get a Welsh passport and escape uh, escape the country. <laughs> or you know maybe at some point you know an Iraqi passport, which I could claim would be superior to a British passport. So you know, who knows? Uh, Pascal, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts for the day? I'm 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 interested in what this is about the future of American politics in terms of what does right wing one party rule say about the capacity of the conservatives to govern in a western liberal democracy and should we be looking to british the british and all of their internal contradictions with that that are manifesting right now as a warning as to what will happen if we did have right-wing one-party rule in the united states it's really terrifying and gloomy prospects when i think about britain the only positive outcome is like at least i get paid in dollars so you know maybe Maybe when the British colony collapses, I can go and like buy a mansion in Hornsey 
or maybe in Bridlington, you know, live on the sea, you know, on the Riviera. You know, it's my dream is to live in Bridlington. That's my, 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 like goal in life, because it's a little less fancy and hoity-toity than Scarborough. You know, so, you know. I've, you're like you're you're like an American German coming back to the Weimar Republic with a big with a big wheelbarrow full of notes, being like, I yeah, gotta exactly. buy a manor. <laughs> I'm gonna buy a manor, and then ju- just in time, just in just in time yeah. for the purges. Yeah, it's like uh, it's re- it's really good. But I think Pascal, I think what we're seeing in Britain, I think this is really interesting. I mean, we're seeing echoes in like Brexit happened before Trump, right? Yep. And we're seeing echoes of this manifesting in different ways in in the anglo-saxon world and i think you know it does speak to the political crisis and the fact that the fact that the left is so disorganized the fact that there's no real alternative uh to power you know i've talked about this in other contexts it's like you know recently there was kind of a revolution in in um, sri lanka and, you know, people storm the palace, they jump in the pool, they get on the president's peloton, right? You're at the commanding heights of the state, and then what do you do, right? Like, what's the plan? And there is no plan. So, you know, you elect Labour, you're going to get a slightly different variation of what you would get if you voted for the Tories. Uh, but, like, ultimately, none of those programs are going to get us out of the, like, like deep and miserable, uh, you know, and it's like very painful for people like people the inflation in britain is really heavy on people the you know like i talk to my friends all the time about the cost of living the energy bills are absolutely you know like my parents are like pretty well off and my mom and dad are like uh we better turn off the heating in the middle of winter and they're like in their 60s and 70s because you can't there's, trust there's talk of blackouts there's, yeah, there's, there's, there's legitimate, legitimate conversations about blackouts occurring this winter. So it's, I, I it, to me, it's it kind of a lot of this conversation sort of, I think the last couple of years has been the death of the liberal consensus that things will just progress upwards and there will be this, we're moving towards this inevitable, things will be better in the future. And I think for a whole generation of people, that's starting to no longer be the case, that we're realizing that actually living standards are falling now. Things are actually getting worse, which is sort of terrifying because uh, at least my generation, I grew up being told that there's this upwards momentum that we're just always moving on. And I don't, I don't see it anymore. Yeah, well, uh, that was the mantra of Labour, if you remember. Uh, I don't know, in 97, do you know what their campaign theme song? Things can only get better. Uh, (laughs) That's a blast from the past. Yeah, a blast from the past. Well, guys, thank you so much for coming on. It was a really great conversation today. Um, You know, we were able to conquer discourses, technical issues. Ralph, it's been a pleasure uh, as usual. We hope to have you both on at some point uh, in the future. You're a good double act, actually, playing off each uh, other. To We're hopefully going to be following things in Britain a little bit more closely uh, over the next couple of months, because as Pascal said, it's like an important test case for the rest of the world and things like that. And, you know, so everybody, uh, before we leave, uh, discuss anything you want to plug. Uh, yeah, sure. If you're interested in wargiving for whatever reason, I, I don't know, uh, check out my channel. It's at, uh, it's it's Discourse Miniatures in YouTube. 
if you want to hear about how Games Workshop are, are screwing the pooch again anytime soon or about Hasbro and how they're collapsing, go check it out. And uh, Ralph, anything you want to, anything you're writing, anything coming up, up and coming that you want to let us know about? Um, not at the moment, but if you want to follow me on Twitter, my at is at buffsoldier underscore 96. That's fantastic. At buff soldier. Is that like because you're buff or because you're a Buffalo soldier? It's, it's reference to Buffalo soldier, the song. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. There you go. Okay, guys. Well, then, with that, Pascal, would you like to say the 12 magic words? We are out.